Hello, and welcome to the Thinking Elixir podcast, where we cover the news of the community and learn from each other. My name is Mark Erickson. I'm Cade Ward. And I'm David Bernheisel. Let's jump into the news. Livebook got a new feature this past week that makes it easier to focus on the code cells. And isn't that what developers want to do? We want to focus on the code. The new feature, which will be in the next release, is called Code Focus Mode. So normally, you create multiple code cells while working in a notebook, and Livebook will render the output of the code cell right after it. Sometimes that code can be like super large, so this makes it kind of hard to just focus on the code. There's a lot of scrolling and you know other visual noise. And so this will add a keyboard shortcut to collapse or hide all of the other stuff. That way you can just review and look at the code as you're writing it. Mark, did you try that out? What, what was that like? Well, I didn't try out this particular feature, but I am looking forward to it. So this past week, I had a lot of fun just using Livebook because a coworker of mine was starting a new Phoenix project to use for an internal tool. And I wanted to be able to contribute to what he was working on, but it wasn't in a shareable state yet. So I just opened up a live book and started hacking on the code that I was wanting to end up in that project. And this happened to all be about integrating with an external API. It made a lot of sense to just be able to do that on its own. So I was just using the rec library, REQ, and just making these calls and figuring out how this API works, what are all the things I have to do. And then I just started coding up the module right there in the live book. You know, after the module declaration, I can just have my functions calling the module and testing that it's all working. So by the end of it, I had code that I could drop into the project, which I thought was really cool. It was a win for me. But during that whole experience, I saw what they were talking about with this problem, where you have lots of little code cells interspersed with markdown notes and all the output that gets rendered there's just a lot of scrolling and it got a little awkward and when i saw this i was like oh that's gonna be nice that's gonna be helpful so yeah i'm just looking forward to that because i think livebook is a great tool for that kind of a workflow like hey i just need to experiment and play with this external api see how it works but then you can actually start building workable code in it i wonder if the opposite is going to be true I wonder if there's going to end up being like a presentation mode or something like that, you know? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because then it's just like collapse all that and show all the, the markdown stuff and the, the notes. That could be interesting. You know, that's a good idea, David. If only there was a place where you could go maybe discuss that feature. <laughs> As it turns out, they announced live books actually are using the the community or the discussion boards on GitHub. It's kind of a newish, not really super new, but recent addition to GitHub, right? Where you can go have more of a form-like discussion on GitHub repositories. And so the Livebook repo has opened that up and you can click join the community on the livebook.dev website if you want to take part in that. And there's already a bunch of discussions happening. You can go search for questions and get answers and discuss potential solutions. Yeah, I think it's a common problem where people will go to a GitHub repo and they just like try to figure out how do I use this library? And they just have a question on usage sometimes. And those sometimes get opened as issues. And that just creates a lot of noise for the maintainers. And lots of times, if it's a well-groomed project, they'll just close them and say it's not, you know, take that somewhere else to a different form. Having GitHub discussions available on the project is a nice resource to kind of keep it all together. Maybe it's part of Microsoft's goal of turning GitHub into a social media platform. I don't know. But I think it's actually still beneficial to the projects. And next up, Davin shared a contribution he made to the Phoenix Live Dashboard project. The Live Dashboard is that 
cool interactive thing where you can see your list of processes and explore it's kind of some of the internal state of your running application so in the live dashboard it has a feature already where you can click on an otp application and see the supervision tree displayed visually and david wanted to make that application tree be full screen because when you get some of those larger applications where there's a lot more going on in the supervision tree it can be a little bit more hard to to see it all in the small window that was popping up in so he did the PR to make that happen. And there's a link to the PR in the show notes where you can see a little video preview of what that looks like. Anyway, I just thought that was a great little contribution and a reminder to all of us that we can contribute and get involved in some of these projects that we use on a regular basis. And our contributions don't have to be huge, but they actually do improve the whole developer experience. So congrats to Davin. All right. Also, in episode 92, we talked to Mitch Hanberg about his alternative templating library called Temple. First up, I guess a little update on that. I saw that he tweeted that he he did get something done and it was kind of like a drop-in replacement to use the new EEX compiler. And I was just like, that's so great. It feels good to be able to get Mitch on the show, you know, and just just talk about what he's working on and then get like some actual community feedback and then arrive at a, at a much better place. So this isn't about that, but something came out of that effort though. Mitch also made an EEX compiler visualizer it shows in steps like the things that are happening when you type in a string right and how that gets turned into the eex template or the other way around rather if anyone else out there wants to play with templating engines for phoenix he created the project called eex compiler visualizer so you get to step through the compilation steps with the various eex engines it's not just the one right there's live view and then eeks as well and then the regular eex one yeah that's pretty cool love seeing that so we saw on social media that the Zig language is now self-hosted. Last week, we talked about Rust and the Rustler compiler project. And during that, we did mention Zig and Ziggler. So Zig is a cross-platform C-like language. It could be used with Ziggler to integrate nicely into Elixir projects. So very exciting for them that they have hit this major milestone. And we just wanted to give them a mention. Yeah. So what's cool about that is this idea of a language being self-hosted. I remember talking with Jose about the early days of Elixir when he got Elixir. So it was self-hosted. And I was like, well, what, what does that mean? So lots of times when you start creating a new language, you'll use existing tools that maybe have your tokenizer or your parser, and you, you, you build your compiler in a different language. So sometimes languages will start off being written in C. They might take text that is in the language you're creating, maybe like Elixir, and then it goes through this other language to do all the work and turn it into the output. This is just marking that milestone where Zig project can actually write Zig code to create their own compiler and their own compiler can compile Zig code. So it's just like one of those milestones in the process of the growth of a language. Just cool to see. And that's it for the news. Fly.io supports this podcast by providing editing services. Beyond being great for supporting us, they are a great place to host your next Elixir app. Check them out at fly.io. Today, we're being joined again by our special guest, Jose Valim. Jose, welcome back to the show. Hello, I'm back. Yes, this is awesome because we have been doing a five-part series visiting with you, talking about Elixir and the process of creating it and bringing it to the community. And we've been going through the change logs, talking about basically three change logs, three releases at a time, and some of the significant features that have come out. So this is part four of our five-part series. 
So if you want to check out links in the show notes to previous parts one, two, and three, we'll have links to those there. And in the last episode, we talked about the Elixir releases of 1.7, 1.8, and 1.9. This is all counting down to the 10-year anniversary of the Elixir language, counting from the date of the first public release of the language. I'm really excited because I've really enjoyed these. I continually learn a lot just in the process of talking about these things and remembering things I'd forgotten or realizing things I never picked up on the first time when it was released. So, Jose, where do you want to start with this time? All right, so let's get started with 1.10. Even though it's recent, when I was going for the changelog to prepare, I realized it was quite a big one. So we have a bit of work ahead of us. And one of the big things in 1.10 was the Erlang OTP 21 integration. So usually when there is a new Erlang version, so for example, I'm going to use the most recent on the time that we are recording now, which is OTP 24. It was like a big Erlang OTP version because of the JIT, right? The just-in-time compiler made everything like 30%, 40% faster. It was amazing. But Elixir had to do nothing to leverage that. You just updated OTP version and everything got faster. There was no integration, zero work required from us. But every once in a while, there is an OTP release that adds something that requires us to rethink a couple things or change approaches, reconsider. And this release was one of them, OTP 21. There was a lot we could leverage from that. And also, it's just worth remembering that we're just coming off Elixir 1.9, which added releases to Elixir. So some of the work that we are going to see, not only on 1.10, but in the other releases today, it's kind of like finishing the work that started on 1.9. So let's get started. So what is the, the, one of the biggest things that we are doing because of OTP 21? The biggest thing that we're doing here is the logger integration. You know, when we started Elixir, it shipped with a logger. Uh, there were some issues in the Erlang logger that were known by the community. So Elixir like solved those issues. There were like Erlang projects solving those issues. But the OTP team decided to solve all those issues in Erlang. And now because we would start requiring Erlang OTP 21. So uh, yeah, let's, let me just make that clear. It's not that Erlang OTP 21 was just released by the time of 110. Is that we can say now that Erlang OTP 21 is required from now on. So it means that it has passed maybe two years since OTP 21 came out. So we're like, okay, we can require it. So now we can integrate with Logger. So now when you use the Elixir Logger, it's going to go through the same pipeline as the Erlang Logger. So this is the very beginning of this unification. Something else that we added in this release, thanks to Erlang OTP 21, was the additions of new guards because Erlang added a new guard called ismap key that allows you to check if something is a key in a map. And with that, we were able to add new guards like isstruct. So from a developer's perspective and the logger impact, I remember that in some Erlang dependencies I had, I had to also use lagger, which I think solved some of those issues, but in, in an Erlang way, right? And Elixir had its own logger as well. And there was some configuration I'd have to do to, to kind of unify those into the same pipeline. So, so now with Elixir 1.10, 
the Erlang logger and the Elixir logger are starting to unify. Is that unified like in, in that they both use the same pipeline to log and now they have more the, the similar logger levels? Yeah, the log levels are synchronized. The metadata is synchronized. And we would improve that in the next releases. So this was the very beginning of unification. And we are actually, we are not done with the unification. Uh, there are still a couple things we need to improve. But like the bulk of, the, I would say like over the, the releases we're going to discuss today, I would say like 80% of the work is done. And a huge shout out to Ukash Halev, who was the person like, behind this work and driving this work for the last two years. Yeah, I remember seeing his name all over that. The big impact here then is is that the 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 back end of how logger locks is now synchronized with Erlang instead of being two different pipelines. Does that sound right? And to your point is a more unified experience for the whole community. So like logger is no longer a thing, right? And you no longer have to worry like, wait, you know, like I changed this log level. Why, you know, why why it's not reflecting because maybe it was an Erlang package that was logging and that was not affecting the Erlang level, right? So unifying all this is great. Everything we do in the Elixir, using the Elixir API is going to reflect everywhere. And it's something we'll talk more about in the in 1.11, but typically one of the ways that you run into this difference of logging is that you, you might deploy your service somewhere and you might need like JSON the formatted logs, right? So that your your logging service can like parse out keys and stuff. Well, that was that would be tedious and hard, more difficult to do in an older version of OTP and a you know an Elixir. So now we're starting to see where that gets a little bit easier. That we're going to get to structured logging, I think, next. But that's not in this this release one dot ten. So you'd mentioned in this one dot ten release that there were some new guards like the is struct and is map key. Whenever I was first learning about Elixir and learning about guards, you have to internalize that whole idea that a guard has to be doing a very small amount of work. You can't create a custom guard that does like a database lookup, right? You, you have to be very specific because it has to be able to be executed quickly and without side effects. And so I just think it's cool when new like map features were added to the guards because you, I mean, honestly, you could do check for a map key in a pattern match, a function head. Why is it more valuable to say I can do that in a guard here? Actually, most of the time, you're not going to use the guard, actually. You're going to use the guard when both the map and the key, they are given as arguments. So that's when the guard is going to be handy because you can only pattern match in the map a key that was pre-existing. And there is one other scenario that I did not realize this at the time, but it allowed us to add other features later, which is in receives. So when you do a receive, you want to get a message out of the inbox. So for example, if you create an abstraction like the task module that may look for something particular in the inbox, you only want to see, hey, is my message in the inbox? But if that message was like generated dynamically in some way, you wouldn't be able to check that. Like you wouldn't be able to say, hey, have I received any of those messages? You see what I mean? Like, so let's say that, okay, let's say, I think we use it in a wait many. I'm not sure, but let's suppose that we do. So let's say like you start 10 tasks and you want to say, hey, give me the one that finishes first. You may receive 10 different messages and, or 12 because you may have started 12 or five. So the amount of messages that you want to look up it's not predetermined. 
we cannot write a receive clause that says, give me this message or this message or this message. You need to say, hey, give me this message and do a lookup somewhere to see if that message is part of the set that you're looking at. I'm not, I'm not sure if this is clear, but the thing is that with this functionality is map key, we, we are able to implement this kind of stuff. Because before we couldn't say, hey, is this message that I'm receiving one of the messages that I'm looking for? There was no way for us to do this lookup in guards. But now if I put those messages that I'm looking up for as map key, I can actually check if the map key is there. So this was a side effect of this feature, which was like missing from the Erling virtual machine for quite some time. Like there were like some really old hacks about on like how to do like dynamic message receiving in the Erling virtual machine. Like you can find like really old articles and what they do is that they emit some special bytecode. So this kind of enable that possibility. I have to check, but I'm almost sure that task await many is one of the things that came out with this. Oh no, I think we added yield n or something like that. Okay, it's going to get loud. I'm using my keyboard here, but uh... <laughs> anyway, there is something in task that uses. I'm just maybe yield many or yield need need to check, but yeah. Which is which was really nice, really nice side effect, and and so I understand. Like, so a lot of these guards are compile time guards anyway. So if we didn't have like the key known ahead of time, at least during compile time, so like maybe we were dynamically creating modules and the keys that might you know need to be checked. That's where you could maybe more more likely leverage this is map key. Like I'm just looking for any of these keys in in there, in the map. Yeah, before there were no easy way of doing this. Yeah, you could do, like you said, I could define a module dynamically so I can define the messages, you know. There, there's always crazy stuff you can do, right? But this one was like, okay, uh, this is how you, you can do it. A more straightforward way. Yeah, I'm looking at the docs and there is no yield any. Anyway, it's used somewhere. It has been used. I'm not, <laughs> maybe maybe it's another project, but it, it has been useful somewhere yeah well we should keep going we got a, a lot to cover in 1.10 still one of the things i'm looking at just in the change log is compiler tracing is that one of those additional benefits that helped bring about these improvements to the compiler where we weren't having to compile and recompile so many files so it's related but not the the root cause so the main rationale for it was, and later we implemented checks on top of it. So it always happens, like, you know, sometimes like is map key was just an example. Like we added the feature and not thinking about it. And then like very nice use cases for it come up later. But the compiler tracing, so the needs like the Alexa compiler needs to track the, the we talked about this several times. We're going to talk about it today still. The Elixir compiler needs to track like dependencies between files and it would store that in a ETS table. But we would store what we needed for us to do our work. But people in the community, they were like, hey, I need to know this information because I want, I need to do something about it, right? A great example is the project uh, Boundary by Sasha Yudich. So, you know, it, it's like, okay, I need this information. So they would read this table, but then we would change it in another release because we're not really considering the table to be for external consumption. So there was no way for people to hook into this kind of stuff, like IDEs, you know, in general, like there was no way for them to hook into this stuff. And the idea with the compiler tracing is that as we compile, we are going to call your tracer and then your tracer can store like 
well, what is being defined, where it is being defined, which macros I'm calling, what am I importing, which aliases I'm expanding. So we have generalized, and then we changed our coding mix to use the compiler tracer, obviously. But the main idea was kind of like to solve this problem of people wanting to know what the compiler is doing because they want to track, they want to do something interesting. You can even do like static analysis now with this kind of stuff. So that was the the main generalization and it, it led to additional features later on. But looking at 1.10, I think the most loved feature in this release was the improvement to the sort-based APIs in Enum. I was eyeing that myself, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because Elixir, you can compare all Elixir terms between each other, but we say that's a structural comparison. So for example, if you're comparing dates, because the comparison is structural, it's like comparing the day before it compares the year because the keys are going to be compared alphabetically. And that's not going to give what you want, right? So a lot of people would go into issues with that and then they would they would identify the issue they you know like they were like oh okay this doesn't work the way i want to so they would identify the issue but then writing the proper solution would require using like sort by and then seeing if the result was going you know it was it was not nice and the idea with the sort based apis in enum is that now you can say enum sort and then if you give a list of dates you can pass like the date module as the second parameter. And then Elixir knows that you want to do a semantic comparison using the date module. And we added this to a bunch of functions, the, the semantic comparison. And it's just so much nicer. It just makes much more sense. It's clear for everybody. And you can say, hey, I want to sort by date ascending, descending. It's kind of one of those things which is like, we could have done this in Elixir 1.0. There is nothing like, there's nothing revolutionary there. We're not like waiting for any Erlang OTP feature. It's just that we never realized that we could do that. But now it is here. Maybe not directly related to why, you know, the sort-based APIs was included, but I, I remember being part of the discussion that one of the surprising things of sorting a variety of Erlang terms, and by Erlang terms, I mean a number, Adam, reference for functions, that kind of stuff. Is that, yeah, like a, a number was always going to be less than an atom. And so you always had to make sure that you were comparing like things to like things. And that's still relevant, you know, today. But having a clear API to how to sort, you know, these these things like dates, it's going to be less surprising to developers. Yeah. So if, if, you're, if you're listening to this and it's not exactly clear, check out the docs for enum sort. And you're going to see examples there of how this work. And if you're like... How did it work in the past? Then go to the docs of Elixir 1.9 and read the docs for minimum sort. And then you're going to see exactly how it was in the past because we have a bunch of advice of like how to do this and this and that. And now like most of this advice is like, hey, you know, it's much uh, more straightforward. I sort by dates uh, pretty often myself. And so I remember it going from like a three or four line, you know, operation to to just a one one line operation. It was, it was uh, very convenient. And then something else that I remember during the upgrade, some projects that I had going from 1.9 to 1.10 that caught my attention was track. So we, we did talk about compiler tracing already, but also at compile time, there's a new way to store or, or to mark rather these compile time versus runtime things, right? Set in the stage again, we, we talked about releases, I think it was in 1.9, Elixir releases was kind of merged into Elixir core, right? 
one of the things that I found that a lot of projects did, maybe incorrectly, was storing secrets or configuration in module attributes. And so they would do something like application get env and then store that into a, a module attribute. And module attributes are all, all compile time. And so one of the, the new things in Elixir 1.10 is to mark that these happened in compile time or runtime. So the new function to say that it's safe to do this at compile time is application compile env. And I thought that was a really good way to like make sure that the intention is correct, you know, of the developer. Like you are for sure, like you definitely want <laughs> to compile this environmental, you know, configuration kind of setting at compile time so it won't change and that's that could be a surprising behavior for some folks. One of the things that we did with releases was exactly to look at the whole configuration story and the issues that we had with this. And we are going to talk about it soon, like on, on 11 as well. But continuing our story is that people, they would put the secrets in their like module attribute. And then they were like, oh, we want to move to the configuration file. And then somebody went there and said, oh, we should not have the, the secret in the configuration file. We should move it to environment variable. But then this environment variable, they were reading in their like compile time configuration files, but this environment variable would be set only at runtime, not when they're compiling the code, but when they are running the code. So which meant that when they ran the code in production, you know, they would change the environment variable, but we already read it because we read it at compilation time. You know, we were missing like the signaling in the whole, in the whole pipeline. And the cool thing, so the compile env is great to tell users that, you know, like, hey, this is a compile time thing, but it also tells the Elixir release stuff, uh, the release functionality to track if the value of that flag changed between compilation and runtime. And if it changes, it's going to warn and let you know that, hey, you have this thing here that, you know, was not supposed to, like, was supposed to stay the same. Like, you're changing the value of something that we know you read at compile time and it's never, it's not going to be read again. So we are actually trying to go through the whole experience and make sure that this particular pitfall is going to be fully removed. This discussion is actually extremely important because in Alexia 1.14, that is going to come next month, uh, the application get env in the module body is going to emit deprecation warnings. So you're most likely, if you haven't heard about application.compileEnv before, in a month, the compiler is going to be telling you about it and saying, hey, <laughs> this is deprecated. You should be using application compileEnv. And most of the case is going to be just, you know, just change the get to compile and you're good to go. And you're going to get like better guarantees for free with a small change. Gotcha. Okay. And then the last thing about Elixir, we'll zoom through this part, is we've always talked, every release seems to have something about dates and date times and stuff. And this this is you know not excluded from that. So there's now sigil support for third-party calendars, which is great. Uh, we've got a couple new functions in date time, like now bang. And so you don't have to do the, you know, the, the constant tuple matching there to get the date out. The shift zone bang. That's also new. And then and then a brand new one was local now. So that's off of naive date time not regular daytime. This is building on the, I think, in, was it 1.9 or 1.8 in last episode where we added support to time zone databases? So this is continue building on top of that. 
And then, so I'll, I'll help you zoom from this. So in XUnit, another nice feature that we got on 110 is that before, if you're using Capture.io, you could not run tasks concurrently, but since 110, you actually can. You just need to remember that you may capture the IO of another test, but as long as you're doing like a, a substring match, like you do a cert instead of equals equals, you do equals tilde, then it's good. You know, building on top of releases, we continue improving releases. Like we added things like overlays. A lot of the times you, when you build a release, you want to copy some files as is to the release. We call these an overlay. So we added overlays. I think the nerves folks, they use it a lot. We added support for disabling the release distribution. So a bunch of features. And we also improved the mix compile task. You can actually pass mix compile dash dash profile time. And that's going to show like how long it takes each file to be compiled. So you can put that like into an Excel or you can write a script and see which files are taking the longest and this kind of stuff. So uh, a bunch of improvements, you know, again, looking back, this was kind of a big release, a lot of really nice features, improvements throughout, continuing the foundation that we started in, in 1.9. As a developer, couple of the things that I noticed the most when that release came out was those those developer experience enhancements. And for me, that was like the XUnit Capture IO, which I love. I always turn that on. I like the ability to have my tests capture the logs so I can have warnings or whatever, and they're gathered with the test. <laughs> and so they don't get a lot of noise in other places. But also like the pattern matching diffing really helps you see what was not matching with this big map compared to this other map? You know, having that diffing in the console was a really big help. And that, that was another one of those features. And it's actually one of the features that was very hard to implement because we kind of have to re-implement the pattern matching engine now in pure Elixir. So we know exactly what you are looking, what is missing. And this was geared by contributions as well. Contributors did the bulk of the work and it was like, not straightforward work at all, but it's a lifesaver, you know, like, yeah, it's, it's a really nice feature. All right. Well, let's go on to Elixir 1.11. So just to give some context, this came out in, let's see, October, 2020. That was about nine months after 1.10. It's been a little bit longer than the six month cadence that was kind of originally envisioned. Yeah. So uh, remember that one thing happened. Uh, <laughs> it was 2020, so uh, we we had just changed. I think the release cycle. I think we just changed to be like January, and I don't remember. But anyway, COVID happened, and then we were like, we are going to take things slow because you know a lot of people they are having to deal with things that nobody was planning with dealing with, and even if you know, like even if a release, an Elixir release is like everything should just work, right? There is always work, like, you know, maybe maybe something changes, maybe somebody was relying on something that they should not, right? We try to be as smooth as possible, the upgrades, and they usually are, but there's always something that breaks or maybe some expectation from somebody is going to say, hey, does Phoenix work on, like, the new Elixir version or something like that? So we thought, you know, like, let's take this slow, right? Like, I don't think anybody needs extra work right now. So we are going to, to let this release uh, cook for a bit longer. And then this, this actually was great because about the same time, the Erling OTP team changed when they release as well. 
and then we're able to align with their legal TP team for the next release. This seems to be a, a TikTok kind of, uh, not not the 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 the, uh, <laughs> the social, social media, <laughs> yeah, but the Intel processor kind of release pattern where, or the Apple release pattern where you know there's there's usually a, a big release and then a, a smaller refining, you know, correction release and then a big release and then a smaller refining, you know, release. So this is this is one of those, I think. I think we're going in, in longer cycles. I think because if we think about it, it was like. One six was big, and then one seven, one eight was kind of chill, and then one nine was was big, but one ten was big as well, right? So, well, so a tick tick tock, tick tick tock, okay, <laughs> or or tick tock tock. It's like yeah. a, <laughs> it's a dance somewhere. <laughs> Before I forget to mark the the time frame again, yeah, we we did talk about yeah that 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 horrible thing that happened in 2020 uh, that really that really changed the world. But before before that, in 1.10, so previous release, that's when Live View about came out, right? Live View came out or was announced at the Elixir Conf like just a couple months earlier, and then 1.10 came out. So just to mark it in your memory, like that's that's the time frame that we're talking about. So that conference talk where Chris talked about. Uh, you know, Phoenix Live View and announced it and, you know, and, and people cheered way early, way too early before he actually had his like big drop of what Live View can do. That's uh, that's when that happened. So Elixir.1.11, though, is, well, about a year after Live View has come out now at this point. Right. And so we have. Yeah, a lot of a lot of good like building upon, you know, pr- the previous release. We got a lot more compile focused releases here. Well, we had mentioned like Sashi Yurch's um, boundary library. Does 1.11 really build upon that? Does that like kind of build in some of the stuff that he was trying to accomplish? Yeah. So I think, I'm not sure if Boundary did this. I'm almost sure. So one of the things is that in Elixir, so you define a dependency and that dependency is when you assemble a release, for example, it, it's included, that application. So we usually say a dependency is a package and that package defines a like Erlang OTP application, right? And that Erlang OTP application is made part of the of the release. And that usually works for everything just great with few exceptions, okay? The exceptions are if you are depending on an application that is shipped with Elixir or Erlang, then you need to explicitly list that as an extra application. That's why if you go to our Mixi access file, there's something called extra applications, which is meant to include applications from Erlang and Elixir that you want to include as well, because they're not going to include everything by default. So crypto usually pops up in here, I think. Crypto is another Erlang application that sometimes folks will use, but don't actually list it as an extra application. Yes, exactly. What would happen is that if you forget to list this dependency, then everything would seem to work and then you would build the release and it would fail saying that you you cannot find this stuff from crypto or whatever you're calling. Also, if you start your Elixir application, because this feature where we, when you add a dependency and we automatically add it as an application, this feature, if you remember, it was added in 1.4, I think. So if your application was from before that, you were not doing inference and maybe you never switch to inference mode. But what this feature, one of the features that come in 1.11, and I think we, we we got it from Boundary, is that if you call a module and that module is not coming from an application that you defined in your Mixi access, uh, we are going to emit a warning. Again, it's just, it's all about integrating with releases 
and make sure that when you assemble the release, the code is not going to fail because you forgot to do something in your development process, right? So a lot of the things that we are doing. And this was built on top of the, the, the compilation tracers that we talked about in, that we just talked about in 1.10. And then another feature that we got, and this was related to us trying to make the compiler smarter and try to make the compiler understand a little bit about types. This is all internal to the compiler, but sometimes the compiler knows like, hey, because of a guard or a pattern matching, we know if something is like it's a map or if something is an integer or a float. So we added like some basic like compiler checks for data constructors. So like, for example, maybe you are trying to put a map in a binary and then Elixir is going to say, you can't do that. Those are incompatible types that this is not going to work. And still related to compilation. So a bunch of uh, compilation work is in 1.11 is that we added the idea of export dependencies. So we talked a lot about XREF and now Elixir has to track files. And before we start with two types of dependencies or it's runtime or it's compile time. And compile time is a macro, struct expansion, import, all those would be compile time. And then we said, hey, you know what? We can have a special type of dependency for structs. And then instead of, you know, changing whenever they, the, the module that defines the struct changes, we're just going to recompile if the struct changes. And that was an improvement. And Alexey 1.11 uh, generalized struct dependencies to be export dependencies. So export, you can think about the public API of a module, which is basically going to be the struct that it defines and all of its functions. So for example, if we import a module, before Elixir 1.11, if we imported a module and you did any change on that module, it would cause everything that imported it. Like, let's say you remove the new line, right? You change, change a type on the dock. It would call everything that imported that module and the things that are calling the things that imported, like, you know, like it goes like recursively, it would cause them to be recompiled. But now in 1.11, we say it's an export dependency. Because you are importing it, we're just going to recompile it if you add or remove a function from that module, because that's what it means, right? If you say, hey, I am importing it, you only need to change if the things you are importing change, not if the code changes, only if the API changes. So this was a new additional meaning that we brought into the compiler. And I think like the experiences of people like when they upgraded this is always great like people they upgraded and then they they said like oh i would change this file and it would recompile like a hundred things and now it's like recompiling like 15. those improvements they are always great i think this was one of the last big improvements we did to the compiler was in 1.11. is this where the sha of the file was actually being calculated into recompile based on that versus like the m time of the file or is, or is that later Oh, yeah, no, so I lied. No, yeah, no, so there's another work <laughs> later on, yes. On 1.13, we added what we call semantic recompilations, which is also a whole other batch of improvements. We'll save that for next episode then. So, okay, so back to 1.11, though. Another big impact I remember as a developer with 1.11, as the theme of releases is, right, still feeling the effect of the big 1.9 release, you know, and 1.10 improves some of that as well with the compile ENV. And 1.11 introduces runtime.exs, that config slash runtime.exs. You know, prior to this, it was uh, releases.exs. And that would only get 
ran well when the the app is running out of a release, which would be different than if you're, for example, developing locally and you're just doing, you know, IEX, you know, mix.phx.serve or whatever. So it was a different story between like local development and released you know, the, the released application. And so runtime.exs, well, why don't you tell us about it? What did, what did that do to help unify the experience? Yeah, so the config slash config access is executed at compilation time before your code is compiled. And then we had like config slash releases that were added in 1.9, which was executed just before the release boots. People loved config slash releases. They were like, oh, this is so great. But we didn't have anything for Mix to say, hey, you know, I want to run this before my Mix app starts, like after compilation, before my Mix app starts. There was no such thing. A bunch of the work that we did after we added releases was actually unifying the Mix workflow, the regular Mix workflow with like Mix test or Mix paycheck server with the releases flow. I mean, they're still very different. But we were trying to make sure that like the main steps, like the order that the applications are loaded, all this kind of stuff, like when things are configured, we did our best to unify that as much as possible. And config slash runtime came out of that. So it's a way that you can configure your apps and it's going to apply both for mix, it's going to apply both for releases. And it's going to do that just before, like, after it compiles, before it starts. And this was, like, when we added these features, for example, like, for, for example, if you're doing Phoenix, and then if you're building a Phoenix application, and you wanted to build a release, it would be like, hey, you know, if you want to build a release, you need to create this file, or you need to get, like, prod secret and change this to this to this and that. And, you know, you had, like, the the system a tuple and vars there was like so much that accumulated throughout the years that you know to solve all the different problems that popped up from like this from these like compile time dependencies and this kind of stuff and these like unifies everything so as soon as 1.11 was released we were like okay phoenix is now requiring 1.11 because we just want to simplify new applications we are going to simplify the docs because everything is much simpler now and, and it's great because like a lot of people complained about Elixir releases throughout the, like in the past, like uh, not Elixir releases from deploying Elixir applications. A lot of people complained about like configuration. And it's so nice that like those complaints are not there anymore. Sure, there's like, there's a little bit of complexity in trying to understand what is compile time and what is runtime, but like everything is structured now. You can like, Think about those things. You can like you can use application compileenv. It's much easier to reason about everything, to understand where things happen, exactly because of all those changes that happened with releases and how we we improved things based on feedback and and on this process of like you know getting feedback and improving in this release, then the next one, the next one. Mentioning that application compileenv again just reminds me that one of the things I think Elixir does really well is favors explicit configuration or or choices over implicit or just you know where it's making assumptions for you that's one of those things i think comes out in these releases as things were just making it more explicit more clear about what's going on it gives you actually something to look up in the docs you know like you have something to search for and say okay i get it i understand how that's used here but i don't know can you speak at all to just the idea of favoring explicit over the alternative a lot of the 
the explicit discussion, right? It's always about like what you want to communicate and about reading the code, right? So it's all based from that, you know, like a lot of people are going to, to read the code, even yourself, right? Like in the future, then write it. So, you know, all the trade-offs between like being explicit comes down to that and, and balancing that line, right? Because, you know, you can be like super, super explicit. Like, so some people say, oh, like, you know, I don't want to be explicit because they, they think that explicit has to imply like verbose. But no, right? Everything is in a scale between implicit and explicit and how you're going to position things there. And naming is always very, very important, right? It plays a, a good role in that. And, and sometimes people think like people consider that the name about like what is like what feels good, you know, but for me, it's more like uh, if, it's it's more the question like does it read good i think it's more important and like you know like you can have like a, a an api that you feel it's like fluent to write i think one example for people like coming from ruby that uh, that would be used all the time i don't think it's used today because it changed was like our spec you know that was like it would felt like people say it it feels good like it feels fluent to to write but when you get to read when you get to understand what that thing is actually doing it was not going to be clear at all yeah so i think that's where i sit in the conversation and it's also like one of the things that i always say like with the companies that we work with at dashbit is that because it's a scale it's always worth having a discussion with the team of where the team sits based on their experience you know uh based on their understanding in this explicitness versus implicitness scale right and but i think that's a discussion that is worth having and it can happen a lot like depending on how somebody learned how to program on or like the first communities they have contact that they may have come from a background like that like favors magic a lot right like the implicitness of things or everything just happening for you and you cannot read it, you cannot look at it. So it's always worth having the discussion because a lot of the times you can have like those biases, like, oh no, implicit is good. But you know, it's like, wait, is it right? Like, is this really what we want? Who are we benefit from those choices and what goes from there? Uh, so in 1.11, there was a good feature that came in that I appreciated, um, which is, I, I'm going to say it wrong, but this is the way I say it in my head because this is what it looks like. It's calendar.sturf time, <laughs> string, string format time. All right. <laughs> so before we didn't have that ability to, to do that, I think we had to rely on the functions that were there, right? It was. Uh, I just love that. Uh, sorry to interrupt, but I just love like we are talking about explicitness. And then the follow-up is like STRF time, yeah. right? It's like, come on, right? It's like stirf, stirf time. I'm sure there's a story there, but I think it's very common in a lot of other programming languages to have that abbreviated the way it is. It, it, it's just a function that like exists everywhere. So maybe it would have done more harm to rename to, to name it like f f format time or something. Yeah. So I think a lot of people think of stirf time as a standard because it has like the particular escape characters annotation. And because we are getting that, I think it's like there's a GNU specification or something like that about it. Like, you know, like that's the name. Right. <laughs>
to give context of what that's actually doing, we didn't really have a way to format a, a, a date time or a time in a specific way other than the functions that were already available, which was, I think, ISO 8601 or something like that. So that was the only one, right? So that was the only way it could be formatted out. But now, calendar dot string format time, strf time, gives us the ability to use that that notation that you mentioned to customize the way that we want it to print out, which is great, right? That's only the date time that we have and outputting it. That's not so much like reading a random string in a random format though so that that part is still not not quite there yeah that's that's the stirp time <laughs> yeah <laughs> <laughs> yeah so we talked about this in a previous episode where i don't know how we can actually have like a performance string parse time so i don't think that will ever be part of elixir and then i think it was you right dave that you have a library that does it right yeah, yeah, yeah. And a Timex, you know, is, is good though too in this case. Timex allows you to to do the stirf time form notation. So if you know the format that's coming in, that's gonna be the good library to use to, to parse that coming in. But then if you don't know the format, then that's where my library, the daytime parser, can come in and it'll do its best guess at what what uh insanity came in. So that was a big a big feature, especially if you're dealing with date times and needing to print that to a screen somewhere in your own format. You, you should have called your library Sturg time, which is like string <laughs> guess. guess time. <laughs> All right. Well, maybe I'll put a patch out to, to just alias that. Uh, that'd be great. <laughs> Round us up on what is left in 1.11. I think we have a, a couple more other things. Yeah. So very quickly for Logger, because we're talking about it. So here we're continuing to integrate with Erlang OTP. So Erlang OTP implemented all syslog levels. And so we added those additional levels that were missing to Elixir, which were notice, critical, alert, and emergency. And we also added the structure logging, which we're hinting to. So now you don't have to build a string. You can log a, a map or a keyword list, if I remember correctly. And it's all like just building on top of the infrastructure that we started to leverage with Erlang. And then there's a very short note here on XUnit. Not a really big feature, but if you're building a library, it's it's more for library than applications, but you now have a, a tag called temp dir. If you use this tag, XUnit's going to automatically create a temporary directory, clean it up for you, so you can use your test. So you know, like so if you're building a library that has to read from a file, this kind of stuff, like create things, move things around, it's very, very handy. And so that rounds up 1.11 for us, which leaves us with the last release of the day that we're going to talk about, 1.12. I think at this point, you know, 1.11 came out in 2020 in October, and 1.12 came out around seven months later. So we're, we're in 2021, which is just last year now, about mid-May. Yeah, so it's about a year ago now at this point. Yeah, yeah. And and we are coinciding now exactly with the Erlang OTP releases. So, you know, when Erlang ships the final, it's it's a happy week or two weeks for everybody. There's an Erlang version. We make sure that everything is running good and then we ship as well. And this one looks like one of those smaller releases, but there's a couple of like 
really cool things that like opened it up to a, a, a new world, <laughs> I, I think. And maybe I'm being dramatic, but I remember there was a library that came out at some time ago and it was a, a little bit experimental and I can't remember the name of it. Do you guys remember the name of what I'm talking about? It was basically Mix Install before Mix Install Teaks or something like that. Yeah, something something like that, yeah. Yeah. This experimental library came out um, to work around a limitation in Mix. So if you wanted to just have like a temporary little Mix script run, but it needed a dependency, like for example, JSON to parse some JSON or something. Wex. Workspace. Wasn't it Wex or Wix maybe? Wix. The idea was that it created a little temporary Mix project because you didn't have one. You weren't creating a Mix project. You just had one little script you wanted to run. And it would put all of its artifacts in there, it would run the script, and then it would clean itself up. That just showed a weak point, I reckon, of of using Elixir and Mix, really, as a scripting language to get a quick little script out and let it run and be, you know, fine. <laughs> and so there's, yeah, there was a couple of big things that happened in this release, 1.12, that really made this world of scripting a lot easier. Why don't you, why don't you tell us about it? About a year ago, there were uh, a couple important announcements as well. So one of them was that we announced an X numerical elixir. Ah, that's right. Yeah, nice. So I, I'm still enamorated with it. I still can't get over the fact that we have a subset of elixir that compiles to the GPU and we're able to implement all of that, like making zero changes to the language. And we also released Livebook, right? Which is a interactive and collaborative code notebooks with elixir. And mix install also played a huge role in Livebook because Livebook is a, it's kind of a script, uh, like a, scr- a scripting file, but you know, that you program directly in your browser and you can add markdown, you can work on it together, right? So, but the way you, you version the dependencies that you use in your Livebook is with Mix install too. You know, so it's exactly what it said. It's about improving the scripting experience we saw the community exploring with nice ideas, like paving the way, as we saw multiple times, right, with releases for Matter, right? So yeah, we, we, we saw the community paving the way with those ideas, and we're like, okay, this is great. We are going to incorporate that as part of the language. And in this release, we also added system trap signal, which is also going to be really useful for some scripts too. That's for like safe cleanup, right? Yeah, or for example, if you want to get a, a, a SIG quit or something like that, we, we actually we started using it in next unit. So if your task gets stuck, you could kill the VM, but you didn't know which task got stuck. But now if you do command backward slash, which is one of the, I don't know if it's SIG quit or SIG, SIG interrupt. I never remember which one it is. But then we are capture that and say, hey, you stopped. And by the way, here are the tasks that are running. So you can kind of know exactly where you're waiting on. It was so nice because, like, I think a lot of the things, I think when I think about Elixir, I think about, like, domains, you know, like, oh, Elixir being good for scripting, Elixir being good for distributed system, Elixir being good for the web. And I think this is, like, with this, we could, like, you know, say, okay, Elixir for scripting, it's it's solved, it's done, like, we can package it up. <laughs> And like this whole thing is done. But that was just just two functions that that uh, that had to be you know created there. Right. Yeah. Exactly. But think about the impact. I mean, you already said it. But at, at Livebook. I mean, this is this is essentially the Thinking Livebook podcast. You know, we talk about it so often because there's just so so much cool things that are happening there. 
Yeah, but I also think it's a question about philosophy as well. And that's one of the things, like, now it seems obvious. But before we had Mix install, before we had Wix, when somebody wanted to do a scripting, they would say, hey, I want you to do a script and I need to use dependencies. Everybody would say, therefore, I want to install global dependencies, right? That was like the solution that everybody expected to this problem, right? They were like, okay, I want to write scripts. Those scripts need to use dependencies. I want to be able to install dependencies on, on the system. And then, and then the whole Elixir team, I believe, was always very averse to that. It's like, no, we, we're not doing that. That's a bad idea. <laughs> you're going to send a script for somebody else. The person is not going to know which which packages they need to use. Yeah, so the idea here with Mix install is that it's try to have our cake in it too. It's have to have something at the top of your scripts, at the top of your code notebooks that say exactly what you need. And we're going to do the job of getting that for you. But it's going to be versioned if you are versioning your script, if you're versioning your live book. When you send that to somebody, they will know exactly what they need and we are going to get it for them. It's the realization that we can solve the problem this way that was not clear before. And at least in the case of Livebook, the live MD has to be evaluated first. So simply opening it doesn't necessarily install it immediately. You still have to choose to evaluate it. So you have the chance to review. And if you're not using Livebook and you just want to run the random script, hopefully you're you know evaluating your scripts before you run them on your system. All right. Well, well, that's that's a good thing about scripting improvements, and I think that's had a huge impact. Just those, just those, what seemingly minor things had such a huge impact. But there's still a lot of other developer experience improvements that we have in Elixir. One of them is EEP fifty four. Tell me about that. Yeah. So, e, so remembering EEP stands for Erlang Enhancement Proposal. So uh, when you need to do a big change on Erlang as a language or as a platform, you write an EEP. I believe this. EP was written by Bjorn from the OTP team. What they were trying to solve was that a lot of times you're calling an Erlang API and the Erlang API says bad dark. And we would experience that as Elixir developers, right? Like you would call something in the ETS module maybe and bad dark would come out, but you don't know if like, hey, is this because the first argument is not a table? Is it because the other input is invalid? Is it because the table, I don't have the proper visibility into the table? So you don't know, right? It's not clear what was going, what, what was happening there. So EP54 is a mechanism for Erlang. So everything here happened in Erlang. It's a mechanism for Erlang. So the Erlang team and Erlang projects can augment errors with additional information. And it's, this is very interesting because there is a reason that when I created Elixir, that I've, I've added the idea of exceptions and I made them structs. And when you do a rescue, you don't pattern match on the struct field or something like that. It's always nominal. You always pattern match on the struct name because what you want to avoid is that you want to avoid something like somebody adding a new field or renaming a field in exception because they, they are like tracking different things. And that leading, or because they want to raise a better error message, and that potentially causing people that is rescuing the code, which they should not do in the first place, by the way, but <laughs> sometimes it happens, right? So that's why we designed the, the, the exception system like that. That's why it's nominal. You don't match on the fields. And the other reason to make it nominal is exactly to make the exception handling mechanism weaker, because you should not be using that. 
right? So if you allow you to like rescue an exception and do better match on exception fields, people would start using that for flow control, right? But if you make that ugly, if you make that, you know, if you say, hey, no, you should only care about the name. For me, it's like, it's a really good signaling signaling of what you want people to do and what you want to expect you are making. The things that should be easy, easy, and the things that should be hard, hard. So are you saying that in this case, you specifically tried to make this wor a worse experience for, for folks? <laughs> totally, yeah. And <laughs> cool. <laughs> that's also part, like, we were talking about implicit and explicit, right? So what I say a lot, like, if you want something that you don't want users to do, you give it a long name. You give it a bad name. <laughs> like Sturf time. <laughs> that a user may need only from time to time, like, make it longer, right? Like, make they pay the price by typing, right? It's like, I really want it, right? And then they are typing like the uh, 20 characters function name. So, and I think, and I think this is like, you know, it, it's still possible. So you can still rescue the exception and then like pattern matching on it, but we're not going to make that easy for you. If you really want it, we want you to like think about it multiple times along the way, hoping that you will give up because you're going to realize that that's a bad idea, right? <laughs> And then the good thing about the, the, ex the exceptions being nominal is that we can change, we can add new fields, and it's not going to break people code. But in Erlang, because, you know, Erlang errors predate, like predate maps, predate a bunch of stuff, an error in Erlang would be an atom or would be a tuple, mm -hmm. right? Which means that they cannot add new information to this tuple. They cannot add a readable error message because if they change that, they can break people's code. And I, I did not knew how they would solve this problem, right? If somebody asked me, I would say, well, you have to do exceptions, right? You know, you have to, to change, you have to change the, you, you have to prioritize the error handling mechanism. But they came up with this great solution in EP54 with a, a mechanism of annotating when the exception is raised. And they did all the work and what this meant for Elixir developers. I think it was in OTP24. You just upgrade to OTP24 and all of the bad args that you would not understand. I think the change in Elixir was like five to 10 lines of code for us to leverage this new system. And all the errors that would not know what is happening now, they are beautiful. It says, you know, there was an error calling this function. The error is in the first or in the third argument and saying what is like, oh, this test table is not valid or something like that. So absolutely beautiful. Yeah, if there were guards, they would say it's not a tuple or it's not an integer in that argument position. Yeah. Yes. So, and the only thing that was missing was actually working with binaries. So if you do like binary concatenations kind of stuff, it still raises a bad arg today, but they improved that in OTP25 as well. And it's just beautiful. Like the binary errors come in OTP25 and we are going to be able to leverage them in Alexir 1.4 team. They are just gorgeous. They just say, you know, like you have a binary and then like if you have a long binary because you're constructing like a binary segment, when to say, hey, like the seven segments is wrong because we're expecting it to be an integer or we're expecting this. It just tells everything. So, you know, if you're talking about like closing the book and say, hey, this is done. I think with this, like there's a big amount of the work in like how can we make the error experience better? I say, like, if you have a bad exception that you don't know what to do next, uh, you should open up a bug in a report in the Elixir tracker. And sometimes people will do that, and then we're like, oh, yeah, totally, this can be better. But sometimes they're like, oh, I'm sorry, this is coming from Erlang. There is nothing we can do about it. And it's like, it's good to close that book, right? It's good to say, you know, if there's something that is not good, we can tell them, hey, 
this is how you improve in airline now we have we have a way of doing this stuff and make sure that the experience experience like is going to be great for everybody so i absolutely love ep54 it's great it's like one of the things that is not like the technical complexity like of solving a technically hard problem but it's one of the things that it's so great and so important when it comes out and then elixir itself got a couple of new functions in the kernel which is pretty interesting. I don't. I feel like of all the releases so far, I don't think we've really talked about any new functions in the kernel module. And the kernel module is like already, you know, imported. So you don't really call kernel dot whatever. You just call if you know you don't do you don't do kernel dot if or whatever. We got two new functions there. I feel like they were inspired by Ruby, but maybe I'm wrong here. We have kernel dot then and kernel dot tap. What was the idea here to make code? feel a little bit better, flow a little better? What, what did these do? Yeah, so I don't think they came from Ruby. Maybe Tap, there was some light inspiration there, but I think it's, it, it, we usually do a research, you know, like, hey, who is using this function with this name and what it's using for? I think we were, for Tap, we were divided between T, because, you know, if you're thinking about piping, a big part of it are added because of the pipe operator in Elixir. So let's talk about this. Why we have new functions, right? I've had been telling people for like five years, don't pipe into anonymous functions, right? But people would pipe into anonymous functions and then they'll be like, this is so ugly. And then I'll be like, that's why you should not pipe into them. <laughs> and then they're like, but we are piping anyway. <laughs> At some point you have to, I think you have to be humble and say like, you know, like, there is no amount of me telling people like don't do this that is going to to stop them from from doing it and it's because they really want it they really think it's going to be good for their code and i can have i can like have like a i don't know if that's a word we would use in english like a precious is like i try to be precious about the thing or like be very careful about something where you could just say you know what i can make this experience good for you even though it's something that I probably would not use, but then I I kind of used then already, so this ship has sailed. I used that. I used it later. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, it's like it, I think it's one of the points where you know you have to realize like it's not like we're saying hey we're adding like mutable variables, right? It's not like something radical. It's something minimal, right? It's like this thing is like you know three lines of code is going to 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 bring a big improvement for everybody and the pipe operator being such a, like a, a strong selling point of the language having that awkwardness there right it's like it's part of the decision that we considered so what do they do so so then you're going to use when you want to pipe something that is not in the first argument that's basically the main use case and tap is when you want to pipe to something but ignore the result of the something that you call we were divided between tap and T. So a T, if you think about plumbing, right? It's like when you have like two paths, right? So you could think, you know, like I, 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 I want to have this path and it dies and then I continue and then tap. And then we did a search around things like uh, which ones are used more and tap was the winner. So we're like, okay, let's go with tap. That's going to be the most common name and it's going to make more sense for people. And it also makes sense exactly like because you're tapping into something without interrupting it, right? You're tapping, getting. Right, yeah. I was trying to think of the mechanical side of that too. It's kind of the same thing as a T. It's just T is a little bit more pre-built. A tap is, it's this thing already exists. I'm just going to tap into it existing as it is and, and get what I want out of it. 
we had a discussion in the mailing list, and then a lot of people say, well, we need to think about then some languages they use then for monads. If so, if a language has a monad, they would use then as like the last step of a monad. And this is actually perfect. We, and, and I think some people were using it as an objection for us to not have it. And there are a couple of things. I don't remember if we talked about this, like, but I remember having a discussion with Jessica Kerr at the very beginning of Elixir, like before we added with, okay? And she said, well, uh, I don't think programming languages should have monads. They should have instantiation of monads, right? So, and that's what led to the with special form in Elixir. Like, if you know monads, they're going to say, hey, this feels like a monad, but it's really way particular instantiation of a monad, and it's more powerful than, it's like a combination of some monads in Haskell, and that's why some people feel, feel it's more powerful because it's a instantiation with superpowers, right? The same way that in Haskell, for example, a least comprehension that we also have in Elixir, it's kind of a instantiation of a monad. It's like a, a, a monad for a particular use case with superpowers. So when she said that, it's something that really stuck with me because I was like, well, this is perfect, right? Because uh, we have comprehensions and then later on we added with and that sentence that she said was one of the reasons that like may, gave me comfort in, in making that decision. If you read about like Joe Armstrong first article on Elixir, he calls the pipe operator as a monad because it is a state monad where we're just passing like a shared state around. It's not really the state monad, but you, if you squint at it, it looks like that. And I was like, no, this is perfect, right? Because this is what I want to do, right? I kind of want to get something out of my pipeline and do something slightly different with it and then maybe get my result or put it back in the pipeline plug.com would be a better representation of a state moment monad right where it's it's the the state is carried around in that big struct for example yeah so and, and in our case we just just generalize the state for kind of anything right the state can be anything so because you can pipe anything you don't need to have some particular thing to pipe you just pipe everything and because it's a dynamically type language the state can actually change as you go through the pipeline but you know, like the mapping is there. So it all goes back to those conversations. I'm, I'm not sure if I'm being able to convey the ideas properly, but I think it's an interesting, like how, you know, like some small sentences from people that you appreciate and you admire throughout the years, like they stay with you. And even like now we are talking about like 10 years later, almost 10 years later, it's still helping you make decisions on how things should look like. So when somebody said like, said like oh, then is monad in some other language, they're like, it's perfect because, you know, we are talking about pipes, you know, the pipeline, if we screen at it, it's a monad, the association of a monad, right? So perfect, let's ship this. And then we added Dan and tap. And now, you know, no more piping to anonymous functions. Everybody's happy. Everybody's happy. <laughs> I, I did get what I wanted at the end. So, you know. <laughs> yeah, I remember that being a big part of the discussion too, was, was the ability to pipe arguments into different positions and even suggesting like the, how the syntax can change and looking at other example, uh, other languages and how they do it. For example, an underscore would represent like, you know, which position the, the, the thing needs to go into. So anyway, that's, that's pretty cool. And, and then I don't want to forget about it because this is, this does feel like a syntax change here where we added stepped ranges. Was that a, uh, maybe technically not syntax? What's the real change here underneath? 
It was a addition to the syntax. We added new syntax. We added a new operator, basically. So it's interesting because it's the first we had unary operators. We had binary operators. And Elixir now has a ternary operator, which is the one that we use for our step ranges. So you use dot dot slash slash. And after the slash slash is a step. So there was one big issue with Elixir, and this would lead to bugs, okay? Which is that we could not have empty ranges in Elixir, right? So we have a function, for example, in the macro module that was about, you can give it a number. It's, I think it's generate arguments. You can say, hey, generate this amount of arguments for me. It's going to return a list with a certain amount of arguments. And you could not easily implement that with ranges because like you could not create an empty range. So if somebody passed zero, we we need to have a special clause matching zero because there was no way we could have an empty range before. We would we would generate like something with a negative interval. So that was an issue that would lead to subtle bugs and not be clear. So as I said, NX was happening and this was also leading to the other reason why we wanted to have separate ranges besides solving this like this flaw is that when we are working with matrices, which are tensors that NX provides, it's very common for you to say, hey, you know, like I want to get every second row of this thing, for example. It's also going to be useful on things like data frames that is, is, is being developed. Like you want to say, hey, give me every second row. So, you know, having a way of like neatly expressing that, which is something like Python developers use a lot, Julia developers use a lot, we needed that feature as well. So I wanted to say, look, I want to access some rows, but from the back. So I want to have a, a negative step. Step ranges then is like, it's, it's solving a limitation of the language and adding more expressive power. And it was mostly a straightforward addition, <laughs> but uh, there is, there is a, a funny story here. We had a function called range disjoint in the range module which maybe like very few people used it. But we had it because, you know, if you have, if we didn't have stepped ranges, checking if a range was disjoint was like super, super easy, right? Just, you know, check where one begins, where the other one ends and you're good to go. But now we have like stepped ranges. So now I need to figure out if a range in whatever step is going to overlap or be disjoint with another range. And implementing this was like two days of the work of implementing stepped ranges. Because if you go to the source code, you can actually go to the source code of a range disjoint. And there is a comment in there. I found uh, an explanation in like Stack Overflow has all those subsites, right? Like Stack Exchange, like for different things. And I found an explanation on how to solve this problem in the mathematical version of Stack Overflow. I don't remember what, what it's called. And then, for example, we know like the greatest common divisor thing, but in order to solve this, we had to implement the extended greatest common divisor that has some additional properties that I don't remember now at the moment. So that's why we also added <laughs> uh, integer extended greatest common divisor to Elixir because we had to use that for the range module. So there is a, a funny it's just a, a funny anecdote of, you know, so if you ever wonder like why there is an extended greatest common divisor in Elixir, is it greatest common divisor or division? I, do, I don't remember. Divisor? Divisor. Okay. This is the reason why it's there. I just think it's 
funny. We've got a link to the disjoint function you mentioned there in the show notes where you can check out the the current version of that, with, which takes into account all these stepped ranges. And just looking at the examples, you're like, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So if you got all these different ranges with different steps, do they overlap? Do they not? Yeah. And then you look at the source. You can just you know click to look <laughs> yeah, at the source there. And this is a great, yeah. It's just a whole bunch of math. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, and the last thing that we're going to talk about for 1.12 and for today is small change, but I absolutely love it too. It's a way to like make everybody feel guilty. Uh, <laughs> is that X unit uh, now tells you how much of your test time of your tests were spending in running tests synchronously and tests asynchronously. So it's a good way for you to see, you know, for you to give a feedback like, wait. Maybe my tests could be running faster because most of the time is being spent on sync tests instead of async ones. A, a nice way of, of nudging people, right? We were talking a lot about explicitness, like making things harder. So this is a nudge, right? It's just like, hey, you know, you you may want to look into this. Just show you the times. That's it. Wow. That is a huge set of changes that we've talked through of 1.10, 1.11, and 1.12. What's interesting is that they're getting closer, you know, into more recent time. And I remember these, they're more fresh. And some of the things that I just took away from this was like the kernel.then and kernel.tap. I remember reading about them and even talking about them on the show here. And it's not something I use. And I just, I, oh yeah, I've, I totally kind of forgot that it was there. And sometimes I think that just happens as we've been with a framework or a language for a long period of time. And we kind of get set in how we think about it, how we do it, the patterns we use. Sometimes it's great to just challenge ourselves and revisit some of those things that have come up since we developed these patterns. Still, this is the way I do it. And just think about, oh yeah, I, I have this ability. There is this option here. I've really appreciated these talks because they help us revisit some of those things and just challenge us and say, have I settled in too much into one pattern and one way of doing things? And there are things I'm not taking advantage of. And I think a nudge of async versus sync is a great little one to just, that, that one's more of a, puts it in your face. It, it shows it to you. If you're on that version of Elixir, you'll see it. So it's just, it's a great example of those little nudges. Anyway, Jose, I've had a blast talking with you. Thank you so much for your time and talking through this set of changes with Elixir. Anything else you want to say in closing? Uh, no, we're good. Uh, looking forward for the last episode that is going to be in a month, we are going to talk about 1.13, which is the last version. So if you are using Elixir today, you're most likely using 1.13. But we are also going to talk about 1.14, which is going to be just out or soon to be out. So if you want to, you know, want to learn about what is going to be new in the next Elixir version, that's going to be the episode two. So see you, see you next time. Awesome. Well, that's all the time we have for today. Thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us next time on Thinking Elixir.